My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. They're absolutely furious and hate women for the fact that they aren't having sex with them. They believe that women have all of the control over decision-making and power and that they are the real victims of society. Well, we've all been Hello and welcome to It's Complicated with Tanya Goodin, the podcast that helps you untangle your relationship with your phone. This is a podcast about learning to live healthily and happily with technology and the digital world and about understanding why sometimes that's so hard to do. Because in learning how to step away from our phones more, we're actually learning how to focus more on our relationships, our work and our health, leaving us happier, healthier and with hours more time in our day. I'm your host, Tanya Goodin, author and founder of Digital Wellbeing Movement Time to Log Off. Each week, I'll be asking a new guest what they've learnt about themselves from the relationship they have with the tiny tyrant in their pocket, their smartphone. Today is the second episode in my mini-series, my two-episode series, around free speech online, which is time to coincide with the US elections. And this week we're looking at what happens when speech online crosses the line. So I'm talking to Laura Bates, who is an English feminist writer. She famously founded the hugely popular Everyday Sexism Project in 2012, which encouraged women to share their experiences of sexism in their everyday life. And today I'm talking to her about her latest book, Men Who Hate Women, which is about the kind of underground communities online that exist around misogyny and we're talking about what is essentially radicalization of young men and the devastating offline impact of some of this speech online which definitely crosses the line into encouraging violence and encouraging attacks on women. So I should warn you it's pretty hard hitting, her book is pretty hard hitting and the conversation covers a lot of her research. She actually went undercover in some of these communities and she talks about what she found there. But it's also a positive conversation because, you know, she's focusing on what we can do, women and men as allies, essentially by being aware that this speech exists because it is hidden largely from view. But as I said, it is having quite a devastating impact online. So I really hope you find this conversation really food for thought. It's one of the most interesting chats I think I've had since I've been producing the podcast. So I'm going to let you get on with it and listen to me talking to Laura Bates. So Laura, hi. Thanks so much for being on It's Complicated. Thank you so much for having me. So... 
I have to say, I've got your book in front of me, Men Who Hate Women. And I, I just I think the thing I want to start by saying is, oh, my God, it is so shocking. I, I feel like that word is is thrown around a lot, actually. But it's your book is genuinely shocking. I think I had two feelings when I was reading it. Half I kept wishing I wasn't actually reading it because I thought I can't unknow the content that's in it. And I'm half thinking of everyone I can now give it to. So it's a series of different, you're exploring a series of kind of different communities or movements online and also offline, of course, which I'm going to get to. And they're all united by one thing, which is hatred of women. Mm-hmm. I want to start with one group who seem quite central to the whole book, really, and, and who I only discovered actually about a year ago. Interestingly, given a lot of what you say in the book through a teenage boy, he told me. Mm. incels the incel community so I'm thinking that quite a lot of people who are listening to this podcast have no idea what incels are have no idea what that community is so can we start by kind of using them as a springing off point in you telling us who they are yes absolutely so incels it stands for involuntary celibates In other words, these are men who aren't having sex and are very angry about it. They would like to be having sex. But rather than examine their own behaviour or their own deeply misogynistic beliefs and the role that those might be playing in their involuntary celibacy, they blame women. They believe that women really are sort of sex objects whose role and duty is to be having sex with men like them. And they're absolutely furious and hate women for the fact that they aren't having sex with them. They believe that the world is hopelessly and unfairly stacked against men, that women have all of the kind of control over decision making and power and that they are the real victims of society. They believe that there is a kind of huge government conspiracy, that this goes to the top of government They believe that there should be government-mandated redistribution of sex, where governments should be forcing women to have sex with men because it's what every man sort of is owed. It's his sort of right, his birthright as a man. And in their fury at the fact that women aren't having sex with them, they believe and in and actively encourage incels to rise up in what they often call a day of retribution, a kind of reckoning where incels will go out in real life and massacre women. And this sounds very extreme. And I think you hear that summary and you think, okay, so we must be talking about one or two, you know, just real oddball men online in their computers. And, you know, this isn't a real threat. The fact is that this is a community that numbers in the hundreds of thousands. It's a sprawling community of blogs, websites, chat rooms, platforms, Facebook groups, communities, forums. And each one of them individually, in some cases, numbers in the hundreds of thousands of members. They have millions of messages being posted, thousands every day. A single blogger in one of these communities might have hundreds of millions of people who've seen their content. And it's not just angry men saying things that they don't really mean online. Men have repeatedly gone offline and, just as they threatened to do, massacred women explicitly in the name of this ideology. From cases like the Elliot Roger case in California, in Santa Barbara, where uh, six people were killed and 14 seriously injured, to the Toronto van attack where Alec Manassian killed 10 people and injured a further 16, to incidents just this year where men have stabbed women and their female children or walked into a massage parlour with a machete and murdered a woman and, and seriously injured another. In the book, I trace specifically this extremist ideology to the murder or serious injury of over 100 people in the last 10 years alone. So it's much bigger than we think, and it's much more real a threat than people tend to acknowledge. I was really struck that, I mean, obviously, one of the things you and I both do is is talk a lot in schools. And you write in the book how more and more teenage boys have been challenging you and challenging some of the things you've said about sexism and misogyny in a kind of quite a formulaic way and this is what led you to start investigating what was happening online and I've had exactly the same experience I think the the incel 
community was brought to my attention, I think about a year ago by conversation with teenage boys. Elliot Roger was specifically mentioned to me by name. And he's a US, he was in the US, wasn't he? Yeah. He was, yeah. Yeah. So, and this was in a UK school, in a quite mm-hmm. rural school in the UK. And I think what's, what's kind of frightening about this whole movement is it's very much happening in this space that we can't see kind of under our noses as, you know, as women, as educators, as parents even. You actually said at one stage in the book you were scared to have the book published. What really drove you to start investigating and to, to, you know, to want to publish this book, which I can see having read it, why you would be scared about it being published, given the kind of threats that you've had in the past? I felt like it was really important because a book about these communities had never been published before. It looks at all of these communities together. That's how, just how underground and invisible these communities are. And the more I researched, the more I realised that actually these groups were having a devastating offline impact, that they had literally killed and were continuing to encourage and incite violence against women offline, that the number of offline attacks seems to be escalating in terms of their frequency, but also that they were having this enormous impact on teenage boys that was going completely under the radar. As you say, it was partly noticing this on my school visits that kind of drove my belief in the urgency of publishing this book. And it's really important to say that this isn't about saying, you know, that I don't like to be challenged or that I've got a problem with teenage boys questioning stuff in schools. I haven't at all. You know, for 10 years I've been talking in schools and having really varied, challenging, awkward, tricky conversations with young people of all genders. And of course there are questions and challenges and resistance and anger and and that's a completely natural and normal part of any important conversation. What I'm talking about specifically in the last couple of years was a very dramatic uptick in the number of boys who were coming to these conversations with extremist ideas, boys Mm. who had been radicalised. And if it were any other group doing it, we would describe it as such grooming and radicalisation, but we don't use those words. But these were boys who were not prepared to engage in any kind of conversation, who were extremely intolerant to any alternative viewpoints and who had really been made to believe completely false statistics. They honestly believe that 90% of rape allegations are false, that women are evil, that women are deliberately stripping men of their livelihoods and their jobs in a kind of coordinated feminist conspiracy that goes to the heart of government, that white men are the true victims of today's society and so on. So We're talking about something very extreme, not just about me going, oh, boys don't agree with me in schools and I've got a problem with that. I think that's really important to say. And I think for me, it was recognising the extent of it that made me want to write the book because here are these groups which are literally slaughtering dozens of women and around the world, almost nobody has ever heard of them. That's an incredibly dangerous situation. But it becomes even more dangerous when these groups are really getting their claws into teenage boys and really indoctrinating them with completely false facts. The potential knock-on impact then on these boys themselves and on the women and girls in their lives is massive. And it's not only the kind of very extreme end of the spectrum of the incels who are going out massacring women. The One of the other communities I look at in the book, for example, is the pickup artist industry, which is a $100 million global industry which is literally training men systematically to sexually harass and assault women under the leadership of so-called gurus and leading lights of this movement who are themselves confessed rapists, who have advocated for the legalisation of rape, who have sent videos of themselves online sexually assaulting women and who are responding to understandably vulnerable and anxious teenage boys looking for advice about girls online with advice like every girl has a rape fantasy you'll just be playing into it who are training men in their thousands and hundreds of thousands around the world to believe in concepts like last minute resistance an extremely common pickup term which suggests that really you just have to overcome if a woman says she doesn't want to have sex with you, you just have to force her and Push that's harder normal. yeah so yeah, that's what I, made me feel that I had to write the book, that there was this this very real threat having a real impact and nobody even seemed to know it existed. So one of the other communities you talk about are the MGTOWs. Yes. Um, M-G-T-O-W-S, men going their own way. 
Yeah. So on the face of it, they look like the most harmless group because they're essentially men saying, we don't want anything to do with women. Women are just so awful and threatening and dangerous. Actually, there's a real threat of danger that we are just going to live our lives without them. So why are they a problem? Because that sounds like that would be fine. <laughs> yes, they're, I think they're just going to cut women out of their lives. I think it's completely fair to say that they're the most, they're the least physically dangerous of the groups, certainly, just as you say. But their ideology stems from this idea that women are inherently evil, that women are inherently out to get men, to hurt them, to damage them, and that men have to protect themselves. The trouble is that that ideology then does have a knock-on impact in women in other ways so for example I think it's very easy to kind of mock this and think well that's ridiculous it's so extreme surely not very many men are listening you know to this ideology but these men going their own way are enormously influential online so they have huge networks again of different blogs communities groups and a single MGTOW vlogger, that's a video blogger on YouTube, has had his videos, which are on really very extreme subjects about women and the dangers that they pose to men, viewed over 100 million times. That's just mm-hmm. one member of this community alone, which gives you some idea of how influential their ideology is, despite the fact that it sounds so very extreme. And Actually, if you look at a recent survey of American men, you find that 27% of men in America now refuse to have any one-to-one meeting with a woman in the workplace alone. It's the Mike Pence It's the Mike Pence rule. Mike (laughs) Pence, the vice president, who won't have dinner with anyone other than his wife. And actually, suddenly the impact on women's careers is potentially really quite catastrophic. And obviously the impact on on boys and their attitudes towards women, if there's an incredibly influential ideology online teaching them that women are so toxic that they need to be avoided altogether and that rape allegations are so likely to be false that you should never really believe any woman who says that she's been raped. So no, they might not be going out and killing women, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a quite significant knock-on impact of that ideology becoming quite widespread. And now a message from our sponsor, the Time to Log Off Academy. As Karen Carpenter almost said, logging off is hard to do, particularly during a pandemic. Before we know it, our screens become our masters rather than our servants. And we find ourselves mindlessly scrolling through our phones, obsessively chasing likes on social media, or endlessly checking our work email on the weekends. If any of this sounds familiar, some digital healing may be in order. The experts at the Time to Log Off Academy can help you see which areas of your life are suffering due to screen dependency. They'll guide you through workable solutions so you can build a healthier, happier relationship with your screens and spend more time with pets, people and Mother Nature. The Academy's convenient online courses are available now and fans of It's Complicated can save with a strictly limited pandemic offer. To get 25% off your digital well-being course, visit academy.itstimetologoff.com today and use the code NOW25 while this offer lasts. So I feel like every time I talk to any woman who's kind of active online let's face it that's all of us we end up talking about you know one of the other communities that you mentioned which are trolls and you actually Mm. make a really good point about how even the word troll is a bit kind of too cuddly (laughs) a bit too kind of unthreatening to explain what trolls are really like I have Mm -hmm. to say my favorite quote in the whole book from you Laura was it was actually from the MGTOW community but I think it's kind of relevant to talk about trolls when you you quote something from a MGTOW message board where you say the internet was created by men for other men and it's only by our divine manly grace that women are permitted to use it and then you put afterwards tell that to Ada Lovelace and Grace Hopper laughed out loud when I read that um (laughs) so your own experience of trolling I think was one of the moments in the book when I read it and and just thought I don't understand how you can carry on doing what you're doing how you can carry on you know with the everyday sexism project with with publishing this book because the level of abuse and the level of threats that have been aimed at you are just horrific I I don't want to kind of focus too much on your own experience although you Mm. write about it but 
tell me where, you know, where trolling comes from, because largely you, you talk about the percentage of trolls that are men that are women. Something, again, that was really shocking in the book was you were you were quoting various kind of prolific trolls. And then you said, and this particular troll was uncovered to be a father of two working in the design industry. Or this particular troll was, you know, a father of six in a very kind of, you know, respectable job. These are people all around us who are carrying out really kind of horrific attacks of women online. Where mm-hmm. does that come from? Where does that whole, you know, kind of urge to do that come from? Well, I think partly it's a kind of reflexive response, a sort of backlash against perceived progress in various different sort of civil rights and equality movements. So partly it's this sense of men who say, oh, you can't say anything anymore, but I can say it online, I can say it anonymously. But I think there's also a real sense of a kind of peer pressure and a kind of uh, groupthink element with trolling in particular, that it is very much a group sport. It's very much about performing to others and trying to inflict the greatest possible harm and fear that you can on a victim very much for the sort of pleasure and praise of your peers. Trolling is a game, it's a sport, it's something that has very complex kind of roots in terms of its ecosystem of sort of stories and memes and things that you might not necessarily as an outside observer recognise, the kind of hidden messages But really, at its root, it's about power and it's about silencing and it's about control. And it's used as a tool, just as other forms of violence or abuse have been over the centuries, to try and take control, in this case, of of an online space and to try and silence and cow, cow and drive out of that space others who you see as threatening to, in this particular case, a kind of white male dominated status quo. So it's a way of silencing and driving out from online spaces, women, people of colour, any kind of minority who is seen as a threat to kind of white male supremacy. And it very much bridges different online communities. So it isn't exclusive to the male supremacist community. In fact, trolling is kind of the thread that links together male supremacy and white supremacy. And many of the Internet's most famous trolls are men who made their name in the extremist misogyny of movements like Gamergate, which was a mass campaign of abuse aimed at female journalists and gaming professionals. Mm. And many men who sort of became leading lights of the trolling movement during that campaign because of their extreme misogyny are now extremely important players in the alt-right or white supremacist movements. So there's a real connection there. But I think with trolling, there is just such a tendency to dismiss it, uh, not to really understand what we're talking about when we use that term, because it does conjure up this idea of either a kind of uh, ridiculous, harmless sort of cuddly figure of folklore, or of a kind of ugly green monster under a bridge. And either way, the message is the same. It's kind of mythical, it's harmless, and it's not really going to come out. And as you say, these are actually men who walk among us. They're men who are, you know, coaching their children's football teams on a weekend morning. They're men who are sending these horrific threats of death and rape on their way into their accountancy job in the car from their mobile phone. And uh, the impact on women's lives is much greater, I think, than our public perception of what trolling is would indicate. We tend to think often of trolling as uh, women making a fuss because they don't like men disagreeing with them online. But you're actually talking about receiving 200 messages in a day from men describing which different knives they would use to carefully disembowel you with and what kind of internal injuries they fantasize about causing you. And it has a massive impact. If you look at recent reports, the vast majority of female MPs, for example, uh, receive relentless online abuse in the course of doing their jobs. I think a third of female MPs said that they have considered quitting because of online Mm. abuse. That's how severe and significant it is. And that's a good example of the kind of real life offline impact it can have. It's also very much an intersectional issue. So Diane Abbott, for example, alone received over half of all abusive messages that were sent to female MPs online in the run up to the 2017 election campaign. So, you know, it's particularly a tool that is used to silence those whose voices we most need to hear 
black women are particularly likely to experience it disabled women trans women so it's um it's complex but it's much more severe i would say than most people think of when they talk about trolling yeah and you you give several examples in the book of you know women who've completely given up on their careers on their jobs have left you know not just the online space but the offline space because the level of abuse was just too difficult to deal with i was wondering if that's why you don't have a personal twitter handle you you know obviously the everyday sexism has one is you know have you made decisions about you know which online spaces you participate in as a result of and and how you do that as a result of some of the attacks you've had yes absolutely it's why i don't have a personal twitter account at all why my facebook account is a purely professional I only use Instagram as a kind of online space and I have absolutely nothing personal about my life whatsoever Mm. online anywhere because of it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So you did mention the link with white supremacy. I know it's really difficult to kind of, and you know, one of the points you make in the book is how kind of global and how disparate this movement is, but are we talking about largely white men? Are we talking about largely young white men? You know, is it possible to see a theme that links all of these communities? Yes, so I think a sense of a threat to a perceived entitlement would be the thing that links all of these communities. In other words, these are men who believe that it is their birthright to be dominant, to be in power and in control over their countries, over politics and over women on both the kind of professional and personal level. And that goes for white supremacists as much as it does for incels and other members of the manosphere. All the evidence we have certainly suggests that these are largely white men, many of them a significant, I would say, majority of them educated white men, college educated white men, many of them perhaps between the age of about 18 and 34, We know that they are particularly centred in the United States, Canada, the UK and Australia, that those are hotspots. 
but they also exist that it's very much a global issue. There are within INCEL and other Manosphere networks certainly groups of non-white men. So, for example, there's a group called IBMOR, which is Introspective Black Men of Reform, and these are a group of black men within the MGTOW ideology and the MGTOW movement. But generally speaking, their numbers, their membership numbers are, are pretty tiny compared with the kind of broader movements. And the extreme racism inherent within these movements kind of helps to confirm that. You know, these are men who are not only furious that women aren't having sex with them, but are in particular enraged by the sight of women who are in relationships or having sex with non-white men. And it fits in very clearly with the white supremacist ideology and their obsession with birth rates and replacement theory, with the idea that the white race is under threat of extinction, with their sort of ridiculous sort of uh, caricature idea of invading hordes of non-white men, plundering the supposedly sort of dehumanised, fragile commodity of white women, with their idea that white women should be kept as sexual slaves and forced to breed armies of pure white children in a kind of master race and the idea that black women should be forcibly sterilized all of this kind of fits in together and it helps to explain why these are largely white male spaces you actually went undercover to investigate all of this which i found one of the most scary bits of the book not only going undercover online as alex mm-hmm. this young man whose kind of identity you took on but also attending a real life meeting in a pub in Chinatown, which I have to say the hairs on my arms were were raising as I was reading that. What was the most kind of frightening element for you, being undercover online or being undercover in that kind of physical space? Well, I think both in very different ways. I think for me, when I went undercover online... Well, first of all, I had to do it very carefully because these men are notoriously paranoid and they are constantly accusing each other of being undercover FBI agents and so on. Oh, really? Which is <laughs> ironic, given the fact that they don't really seem to be on the radar of any law enforcement agency. But I had to really do the preparation before I started. I had to really learn the language. They have this very kind of dense, fast lexicon. For example, you know, they're talking about women constantly, but you won't really see the word woman. They use the word void a contraction of female humanoid, which gives you some idea of, you know, this sort of detachment with which they dehumanise dehumanize women. Yeah. And you have to, in some cases, kind of answer interview questions to kind of gain access to these different communities and websites. You have to kind of convince them that you really are an incel. So that kind of required a lot of preparation. And then the most sort of scary element of that, I think, was the gradual realisation of just how massive these communities were, which I hadn't realised when I started, that we really were talking about hundreds of thousands of members and just sitting on some of these message boards or forums and watching these messages flood in faster than you could read them of you know, everything from men talking about bidding to ask each other to send them pants that they'd stolen from their younger sisters who had worn them to men fantasizing about who could come up with the most horrifying rape fantasy to coming across you know really horrible fantasies about raping and disemboweling me you know stumbling across those without Mm. necessarily anticipating it Um, and I think it was the kind of horror of recognizing the sheer scale of it and the sheer depravity of it that made the online undercover work the most upsetting and you know really horrifying things that they were writing about the victims of incel killers and the extent to which they really revere and canonize men like Elliot Roger and offline of course it was the kind of threat the fear of being recognized the real life meeting I attended which was the biggest kind of men's rights meeting of the year was advertised with a video that showed prominent female journalists and feminists faces many of them kind of photoshopped to have red eyes and devil horns and my face among them so by turning up I knew I was taking quite a significant risk but I ended up I just very much kind of I turned up at the very last minute slipped in at the back and I stayed always at the opposite side of the room from people I recognized who I knew would recognize me you know men who were kind of leading figures of the movement who I'd come up against in the past. And for me, the scariest thing about that was how normal it felt in that room, that there were so many men there who, when I spoke to them, 
were kind of chatting about the weather. They were very polite. You know, they very much were the normal men that you sit next to on the bus that you're, you know, sitting next to in the office. And then a few hours later, they're on stage ranting about how, you know, no feminist should ever be able to have a male child because that would be child abuse or calling for the former director of public prosecutions, Alison Saunders, to be jailed because of her support of female victims of sexual violence. I think what that was very scary was partly the kind of fear of being detected, but also the fear of recognising just how far these ideologies have infiltrated within our communities and that they aren't just kind of, you know, people that you would necessarily recognise as extremists just from speaking to them or walking past them in the street. So I'm actually putting this episode out as part of a series looking at free speech online because we are, you know, around the time of the US election and... I think the issue of, of free speech and fake news and all, all those kind of issues is, is, you know, is really rife at the moment. So what would you say to the argument from men in those communities that, particularly that group in Chinatown, that all they're doing is exercising their right to free speech? Well, I think that first of all, free speech isn't limited. It doesn't extend to the right to threaten violence or incite violence against people. So I think it's often used to excuse things that actually it doesn't apply to. And I think that when we're talking about these really extreme threats of violence, threats of rape and incitement to those things, we have to recognise that free speech simply doesn't apply when we're talking about those things. The next thing I think I'd say is that we're not necessarily suggesting that nobody should be allowed to express these ideas. What I think is that we need more people to be aware of the fact that these ideas are being expressed so violently and vehemently online and that they are infiltrating so far offline. And we need the opportunity to counter that freedom of speech with other speech that doesn't necessarily happen because we don't necessarily know that these movements are happening at the moment. Most mm. people aren't aware of them at all. And the other thing I'd say is that when we talk about free speech, we very well rarely think about the free speech that we aren't hearing because it isn't free. So in other words, when we talk about the rights and freedoms of men to abuse women online, to make online spaces extremely hostile towards women with the defence that they have the right to that freedom of speech, we rarely think about the freedom of speech of those women who are driven from those platforms by that hostility and by that environment which becomes unsafe for them and the, their freedom of speech is very often not something that's championed or thought about and I think it should be. Yes and I think one of the things you mention is not just as extreme as being driven but the kind of self-editing that goes on from women online and I know I've talked in one of the other podcast episodes about how I know I've done that myself. Mm. I've kind of edited what I've said because I've been concerned about the level of abuse that's going to be directed at me you write a lot about the failure of social media companies specifically to act yeah. in this area what what are your views about what they could be doing that they're not doing well I think that they could be taking it as seriously as other forms of extremism I think that there is a significant difference in the way that these forms of radicalization are perceived compared to for example Islamist extremism and I think that we don't therefore necessarily bring the same restrictions to bear on social media platforms on men who are spouting this ideology because it just simply isn't taken as seriously. So I think that that's one important thing. I also think that where people are inciting hatred or where people are threatening to rape or kill someone, it's illegal, just as it would be offline. And at the moment, many people are able to carry out that kind of threat with impunity online because we simply don't act in the same way that, that we should. So, you know, it's not necessarily about asking people to kind of shut people down, but to just simply kind of actually follow their own existing rules, which at the moment they aren't really policing. But I also think that, you know, social media companies have a responsibility to keep their users safe and to decide what kind of role they want to play in allowing this kind of very vitriolic and very dangerous ideology to spread. And at the moment, we often let them off the hook because of this argument they make that it's very difficult to do, that, you know, it's a very difficult thing to police a billion users. And actually, these are often companies with the income of a small country. So actually, yes, they do have the money and the resources to do it if they wanted to, but they won't until they're actually pushed into doing it and taking it seriously. 
At the moment, their policies are not in any way transparent. The way in which they apply them is patchy and completely inconsistent. And it privileges people whose voices we're already most likely to hear. So, for example, if a celebrity like Taylor Swift experiences a huge amount of abuse, then action seems to be taken very quickly because it's hitting the headlines and so it's affecting their reputation. If somebody like me, who has a huge amount of um, support and the public platform experiences horrific online abuse, then as soon as journalists start ringing up and asking questions, miraculously, social media companies suddenly seem to take action and something's done. But it doesn't work if they're doing it in that kind of ad hoc patchy way that's driven by a desire simply to protect their own reputation because the people it fails are the people who are less likely to see their cases hit the headlines. So they are, for example, black women, women with less of a public platform, exactly the kind of women whose experiences and voices we most need to be hearing on these platforms are the ones less likely to receive that kind of support when it comes to actual moderation from social media companies because they're also less likely to receive the kind of publicity that forces them into taking action. At one stage when I was reading your book, I was so depressed that I went straight to the last chapter, um, men who hate men who hate women, because I just Mm -hmm. kind of needed to reassure myself that not all men (laughs) fell into the category, you know, all the different communities that you were describing. Mm. So just over 50% of my podcast listeners are actually men. So I wondered Mm -hmm. what you wanted to say to them about what they can do to help. Well, first of all, I would absolutely say that, you know, that chapter is very important, that the book isn't called Men Hate Women, it's called Men Who Hate Women. (laughs) That's a very important distinction. We are talking, obviously, about a, a small minority of men here, but it isn't a small group. It's a significant number and we need to talk about it, but that doesn't mean that we're talking about most men. I think the vast majority of men would absolutely never dream of behaving in this way, but I think also the vast majority of them probably don't realise it's happening through no fault of their own, because they're less likely to have experienced it directly. And that means that they aren't necessarily uh, galvanised to become part of the solution. So my hope is that this book lets people recognise the reality of what's going on and provides an opportunity for men then to kind of be part of the solution, which, you know, involves talking to boys and younger men in their lives. It involves role modelling different forms of positive masculinity that aren't necessarily damaging to men and women. You know, there is a lot of shift that can't necessarily come from women. When I go into a school and I talk to boys who have already been radicalised to believe that women hate them, it's not very likely that they're going to listen to me, but they might well listen to an older man in their own life talking about some of these issues, talking to them about online sources and whether or not they're actually to be trusted. You know, there is something each one of us can do in our own individual sphere, whether it's talking to young men men in our lives, whether it's tackling issues in the workplace that arise because other men are refusing to meet with women one-to-one or refusing to mentor them, or tackling some of the misconceptions about these issues that are leaking into the public sphere, like, for example, the fact that it's becoming extremely common for people to believe that false rape allegations are extremely common. You know, men can speak out about these issues and can really play a role in changing other men's perceptions in a way that women can't necessarily. And there are a whole host of really fantastic examples in that final chapter about men who hate men who hate women of prominent men whether they're individuals speaking out and kind of making it clear that that this is a completely valid position for men to take, like uh, Barack Obama or Andy Murray or Jordan Stevens, or whether they are actually men leading movements, engaging men in the fight against violence against women, like the White Ribbon Movement or Promundo. There are a whole host of fantastic examples of how men are very much involved in, you know, the positive change that we need to see. Yeah, I, I thought that last chapter was great. I mean, I did then go back and read the other bit of the book that I had stopped reading to go to that chapter. <laughs> but yeah, I thought there was some some fantastic stuff in there. One of the things that I've had a lot of pushback from from boys is just using the phrase to- toxic masculinity. You talk about that. Um, yes. Where they immediately assume that what you're talking about is that masculinity is toxic. You know, I've literally had conversations with teenage boys saying, no, 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 what, what we're saying is the pressures upon you you know, the gender expectations to to behave in a certain way are putting you under pressure. But that seems part of the online radicalisation, that toxic masculinity is a kind of feminist concept that all men are bad. And I've really I've really had to argue quite strongly against that. You've talked about that as well. 
Yes, I think the problem is that you say toxic masculinity and people hear toxic men. Yeah. And you're yeah. right, it's been very cleverly capitalised on by these online communities as a way to convince boys that there really is this kind of broad vendetta of, of hatred of men out yeah. there. But the irony is that people using the term toxic masculinity are talking about the harm and the damage done by a particular set of stringent societal requirements of masculinity and how it should be performed that are deeply harmful and hurtful to men and boys, as well as having subsequently a massive negative impact on women and girls. So actually, the whole point of it is that people are talking about supporting men and boys. When they talk about toxic masculinity, they're saying you shouldn't have to bottle up your feelings and, and never be allowed to cry um, if you're a boy. And we know that, you know, when we talk about that, what we're really saying is men need support and help. They need to be able to talk about their emotions. And if they felt able to do that and to reach out for help, then perhaps we might see a change in the tragically high male suicide rate which, of course, these online groups of men claim to kind of hold as a cause celebre. They talk about that all the time, but they don't actually do anything to tackle or to solve it. And in fact, they double down on exactly those stereotypes of toxic masculinity, the idea that a real man is in control of his woman and in control of his life and in control of his country. And he doesn't, you know, snivel around and get upset and he's powerful and he's strong and he's commanding and he's violent and of course, all of those feed into the issues that are causing that male mental health crisis in the first place. So mm. when we talk about toxic masculinity, we're talking about supporting men, but it's been very cleverly repurposed and weaponized against feminism and against equality movements by these online radicalizing groups. Laura, I could talk to you for hours about your book. I want to end just with three questions and then I'm going to talk about where people can get hold of it. So I ask the same three questions for everyone who's on the podcast. Essentially, it's the whole message of your book, I think, the answer to the first question. But if you could summarise it, if you just had one message that you'd like to say to people listening to the podcast about their relationship with the digital world, about their relationship with technology, social media, what would your message be? I think in this particular case, it would be to recognise that there is an entire hidden world underneath it that you might not be aware of. And that I believe the more people who get to know about it, the better, because the only way that we can tackle it is if people know that it exists. And have you we've talked about you know some of the things you do to kind of avoid exposing yourself online in terms of not having a, a personal twitter account and, and mm. using facebook for, for business but are there any other kind of techniques or tips that you use to kind of get a balance between online and offline yourself i find just turning off the internet very useful i know it sounds simple <laughs> but if i don't do that then i'll often find myself procrastinating and kind of creeping back online no matter what i've said that i'll do but if i physically switch it off at the wall and then go into another room that does wonders for my productivity that's fantastic I've never heard anyone say that actually so you just pull the plug out on the router essentially yes if I turn it off on my computer if I just go to you know turn wi-fi off at the little icon at the top then I'll find myself just clicking back on clicking it again it back on yeah when that sort of itch arises but if I turn it off and then physically go into another room so I'd have to get up and go through and switch it back on that makes a huge difference yeah and finally, what what have you learned about yourself through the whole journey you've had with your relationship with the online world? Mm, that's a good question. I think I've probably <laughs> learned that I'm stronger than I realised. Um, because I think it takes a lot to withstand this stuff. And I think there's a stubborn streak in me that the more people send me emails saying there's no such thing as sexism, you stupid bitch... <laughs> Um, the more I feel compelled not to let them win. And I wouldn't necessarily have known that about myself until I'd experienced it, I suppose. Yeah, I think your resilience really comes out, actually, in, in the book itself. I think, you know, when I was reading it, I thought, I, th I think I would have given up. I think I would have just said, you know, this is a battle that I can't fight when, you, you know, you talk about the level of abuse you've received. So, mm. yes, I think you clearly are very strong. So I want to say to everybody, go and 
get hold of a copy of Men Who Hate Women by Laura Bates. It's a really, really gripping read. I read it in one sitting because I couldn't put it down. And although there are things in the book that you will think, I wish I didn't know that, I think it's really important that men and women, we all read the book. So, Laura, just tell us a little bit about how people can find you online. You can find me at Everyday Sexism on Twitter, everydaysexism.com. It's the Everyday Sexism Project website. And I'm on Instagram at Laura underscore Bates double underscore. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of It's Complicated. If you haven't already, please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. It helps other people find us and it means you get a helpful little notification when a new episode becomes available. For more about getting a healthy balance with tech, you can follow me, Tanya Goodin, or Time to Log Off on Instagram and Twitter. And both my books, Off and Stop Staring at Screens, are available on Amazon and at all good bookshops. Finally, for more information about this and other episodes in the podcast series, visit itstimetologoff.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.